Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. We are uh, in week two of a four-week series uh, through the month of May uh, where we're talking about this portion of Scripture in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapters 24 and 25, which we kind of skipped over as we've made our way through the Gospel of Matthew and now coming back to it. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at these chapters in Matthew's Gospel, talking thematically about, because they really are grouped thematically by Matthew, to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus, though he was the eternal Son of God, became a man, came into the earth to suffer and die in our place, was, was raised by the Father, ascended back to heaven from where he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's what our creeds say. And so as we wait for his coming again, uh, we want to be a people who faithfully live in light of the fact that he's coming. And what we said last week and what we need to reiterate is this idea of Jesus is coming again has created all kinds of uh, spiritual fervor, uh, alarm, uh, and causes people to do some very strange things. Uh, I was reading uh, a blog post or a tweet by a guy who referenced an article in the Washington Post of a man who is an atheist, (laughs) and it's really kind of funny, but who, in light of all of the fervor of May 21st, 2011, the rapture is going to happen. In other words, people believe that the Christians will be taken out of the world and uh, will go to be with Jesus, and those people who aren't Christians will be left behind. So this man came up with a great idea. He started a business. And for $135, you can hire him so that in case the rapture happens, he will go to your house and get your dog and your cat and make sure that they're taken care of. And he has 300 and something clients in the D.C. area of people who've paid him this money. And then if for a camel, it's like an extra 25 bucks or some kind of, and there's only, so again, there's all this, this spiritual fervor that even, even the atheists are cashing in on now in business propositions. And so we want to be a people who, Jesus said last week, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed, right? Don't make, don't make so much of things that, uh, that you just, you lose your bearing, but don't be naive and don't underestimate and don't live as if I'm not coming either. So we want to be a people who, uh, kind of figure out how to do, um, you know, neither of those polar opposites, but somewhere in between and live faithfully in light of the fact that we believe that Jesus will one day come again. So let's turn to this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, and then we're going to read down to um, chapter 25, verse 13. And so if you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me. So let's read together the words of Jesus. But concerning that day, the day of his coming... That day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in a field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom... His master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants, 
and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know when will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept, but at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, but the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is God's word. I was thinking about this this week. As a culture, we know that the world is going to end. I mean, it seems to be imprinted upon our cultural soul. Uh, we, we seem to know that things just can't continue on the way they are now indefinitely. And you see it all over the place, okay? In, in movies about alien visitations or some cataclysmic event or natural disaster, right? Every summer, the new end-of-the-world blockbuster rolls out and we all go to see it, Right? And I think, I think what's going on there is it's because we know somewhere deep down that something more than right now is coming. But what is fascinating is how pessimistic and cynical we are that whenever we picture the end, it's always some horrific, cataclysmic event that wipes everybody out or which produces a kind of dystopian future, right, where human society degenerates into chaos and lawlessness and people become cannibals. And that's what the movies portray. Now, what the Bible says is that the world is going to come to an end, but it won't be bad news. It's part of the good news. And the good news is is that when this world comes to an end, there's a new world, a new heavens and a new earth that is on the way that is coming. And it's part of the gospel that, that things will not always be as they are now, that sin and selfishness will not always define our lives. Death will not always rule over us. Jesus has come, and in his coming... A new age has dawned and is continuing to invade the old age of sin and death until he comes again. And when he comes again, he will judge evil and put it down forever. And on that day, what the Bible says is that all sin and evil will be taken away into judgment. Now that's the teaching in this passage. That day, verse 36, is that day when he comes to judge And to make things right. Notice the reference in verse 37 to the days of Noah. And if if you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, but you're familiar enough with the Bible, uh, you know know that even Steve Carell's played the part, right, of Noah, and and the judgment of God that came down in Noah, that the the days of Noah uh, were the days where God judged the earth in the Old Testament because of how sinful man had become through a massive flood. And only Noah... And his family were left behind. The rest of humanity was swept away by the waters of judgment. And so Jesus says in verse 39, So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Look here at these words. Then, verse 39, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Now in those verses, in those verses to be taken, 
means to be taken away into judgment. That just as the floodwaters swept sinful mankind away, so when Jesus comes, the wicked will be taken away. They will literally be removed from the earth, and the righteous will remain and will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. That's the promise of the Bible. Now, I realize for some of you that might be the exact opposite of what you've been taught this passage means. And so let me offer a couple of arguments for this, okay? First, from the genuine, excuse me, a general biblical theme of exile, and second, from the specific language in this text. So first, we're reading from the book of Jeremiah in our community Bible reading. And in Jeremiah and in all of the prophets, the prophetic warning that is issued over and over again, especially in Jeremiah, I mean, Jeremiah is just slogging through Jeremiah. It's just so hard because he's just, you're just like, dude, have you ever had a good day? Right? I mean, did you ever wake up and the sun was shining and it, the roses smelled nice? Because it's just judgment, judgment, judgment. Uh, but in Jeremiah, the, the, it's over and over again. God is coming in judgment, and his judgment will be he's going to take them away into exile. He's going to remove them from the land of Israel. And only a few, only a holy remnant is going to be left behind in the land of, of, of Israel. Judgment in the prophets is being taken away. It's being removed. It's being pulled out of the promised land into exile. So the imagery of exile is prevalent here, especially in the context where we've talked about the destruction of 70 AD and the temple and the people, you know, Jerusalem being destroyed and the people being taken away. Now, but as I've already said, secondly, if you look at the specific wording in this passage, the parallel offered is Noah's flood. And in the flood, the wicked, verse 29, are swept away, which appears to be a parallel of being taken away. But listen to the summary of the flood event from Genesis chapter 7, verse 23. God blotted out every living thing, man and animals and creeping things, and the birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Now listen to this. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. So it appears from the language of this particular text that being left behind is a good thing, not a bad thing. That the being taken out, the being take is to be taken out into judgment. And I realize, if, especially if you're familiar with the study of biblical prophecy, you might disagree. And you can make an argument for the other that being taken is good and being left behind is bad. No matter where you fall in your understanding of this passage of Scripture, what all the scholars and commentators agree on is this, is that this passage is pointing to the reality that when Jesus comes, it will be to bring judgment. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, and if you're, you're a Christian and you follow him, then that is good news, because when Jesus comes, he will take away all sin and evil. The Bible says he will wipe away every tear from every eye, and there will be no more pain or sadness or mourning or death. And that's what his judgment will produce. But if you're not a Christian, then can I say that should disturb you and cause you to think, because it is an absolute certainty, the Bible says, that you will stand before him and he will bring into judgment every word you've spoken throughout your life, every Facebook status update, every tweet, every hidden motivation of your heart, that you'll be made to answer for those things. And so whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, there's much about this passage that should cause us to examine our lives in order to get ready for the day when we will meet him in judgment. And that's what we want to do in this series. That's what this passage helps us to do. And so there's two questions from this text, only two this morning. I know we're breaking the norm, but two things uh, that the text really answers, I think. And it's just this. The first is, when will Jesus come again? 
And then secondly, what do we need to do until he comes? So when will he come? And then secondly, how do we live and, you know, what do we do while we wait for him to come back? Now, the answer to the first question, when will Jesus come, comes, is ultimately going to be, we don't know. And in light of the answer that we don't know, then the second, thus the answer to the second question is just this, because we don't know, then you better be ready. And that's the teaching from this passage. So let's start with beginning to look at this first question, when will Jesus come? And the answer is very clear. When will he come again? Very clear. Five times in this passage, but particularly in verse 36. Look at verse 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. And just to make a point, he says, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So when will he come again? No one knows. Not even Jesus knows. Did you catch that? I mean, does that create trouble for your little theological box? Jesus, wait, Jesus doesn't know? We'll get back to that in a minute. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, omniscient, omnipotent, and all of that doesn't know. I mean, it's so ridiculous. Listen, it's so ridiculous an idea that the newer manuscripts that we have omit that little part about the Son not knowing, probably because they realized it was so problematic. They just decided, yeah, we'll just cut this little bit out there so that we, you know. And I don't want to try to resolve the difficulty of that for you because I don't think it's the intent of the passage. It's just supposed to stand there, as ridiculous as it sounds, as a warning, something like this. If Jesus, the eternal Son of God, does not know the time that he will return, then that should discourage us from trying to fix a time to his return. As I said last week, our goal in this series is not to set dates for a second coming or outline series of events that will lead to a second coming because in reality the Bible does very little of that. In fact, I would say in light of verse 36 and the rest of this passage, the Bible discourages that. And that is my point of contention with the folks on the corner of Cypress Gardens Boulevard and Cypress Gardens Road with the signs. May 21st, 2010, the Bible guarantees it. It's because, no, I, don't think, I think the Bible guarantees the exact opposite. That you can't know. There's no, you, you, we don't know. And there are a couple of images in the New Testament that I think are important to help temper our expectations. So Paul in 1 Thessalonians, which we read, says that the second coming will be like a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5.2. And that is that it will happen at a time when nobody's looking for it. Okay, it doesn't mean it'll happen suddenly. It means it'll happen une, une, unexpectedly. That it will, thieves come in the night because people are usually asleep. And they can rob them and get in and out without any trouble. So in our passage this morning, Jesus says that, that he's going to come, verse 38 and following, when he, it's while people are going about their lives. They're eating and drinking, and they're completely unaware. They're not thinking about it at all. And all of a sudden, bam, he's there. It's unexpectedly. And if you take Paul in 1 Thessalonians and Jesus seriously, then any date setting is useless. Any, you know, trying to attach Jesus' second coming to a particular date or to a particular series of events... If you do that, or if a person or a group of people do that, then you can be pretty confident they're wrong because the point Jesus is making is is that it will happen when nobody's expecting, not at the time when people are out with signs. But the second imagery from this passage earlier in Matthew 24 is that it will be like lightning in the east. And again, the point when he says, when I come, it'll be like the lightning in the east. And I don't know how many people got woken up last night in the middle of the night, Right? It was great. We had a great, I, I, roll, I heard distant thunder and rolled over, checked my clock, 5 o'clock, rolled back over, and I said, we're going to have kids in the room in about two minutes. And so I hopped out of bed, and I met them on the way. They didn't even get to my room, right? 
Because I knew. You know, they come screaming across. They came flying out of the rooms as I'm in the kitchen trying to get over there. And the point is just that. That, again, it's not that suddenly. It's not suddenly. It's unavoidably. Right? It will happen in such a way when a lightning storm... I mean, if you, you, if you missed the thunderstorm last night, you are a world-class sleeper. Right? How could you not be awoke? Right? So it's unavoidably. It, it's, you won't be able to miss it. That's what Jesus is saying. It's going to be like lightning flashing in the east that just light up the entire sky, and it, you won't be able to miss it. It's, you know, how do you know when you're in love? Well, you just know. Right? And that's the idea. It won't be something that happens in secret. It'll be public and unmistakable. But here's the thing. If that's true, if all that, no one knows, not even the, the out, no one knows, not even the angels, nor the Son of Man, but the Father, then why, why is it then that there is never a shortage of predictions, a shortage of predictions? I mean, there's never a shortage of people to claim to have some secret knowledge, some revelation from the Bible about the date and the sequence of events surrounding his second coming. And it's exactly what Jesus said would happen, that groups would pop up from time to time, and they've been doing it for the last 2,000 years now, saying, look, here he is, or, or look, I've got, I, I, he's coming here. And Jesus says, don't listen to them. Don't go out when they tell you to go out. He says, no one knows. But then why? Why do we keep looking for some spiritual secret that will finally give us the answer? I think, if I can answer that question for you, and bear with me while I, I think it is because Gnosticism is alive and well in our day. Now, what, what, what is that? What, what are we talking about? Let me explain, explain this. Gnosticism comes from a Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge or to know. And Gnosticism invaded the early church in the first decade after Christ's life on earth. And basically, Gnostics said that the way to be saved was not through faith in Jesus Christ, that there was some higher secret knowledge that you had to be initiated into. So some sort of spiritual secret that a very few people possessed that you needed in order to be saved. Now, before you write me off and you say, you're talking crazy now. Ashley and I were in Starbucks in Sarasota. Cody Gingrich, I'm sorry. I'm, this is dissing on Sarasota for a minute. But two weeks ago, we were there in Sarasota in a Starbucks, and there was a flyer on a bulletin board announcing or advertising the meeting, you ready, of the Sarasota Gnostic Association. This is what it said. Gnosis is a Greek word meaning knowledge of the heart, which is a lie. It's just a Greek word meaning knowledge. But it sounds better to say knowledge of the heart. Because that's kind of cool. Ooh, knowledge of the heart. We like the heart. Right? Come, learn the secret practices through the ages. See, it's this, it's this, it's this okay, this secret knowledge, this secret, you can have a spiritual breakthrough through this secret knowledge that, Few have that they can initiate you in, in, into, and then you, you've got it. Now, and the attraction of Gnosticism, I was thinking about this, then and now is that it gives you the feeling of being an insider. You possess information that others don't have. Right? You have been spiritually enlightened in a way that others don't. And that's an easy way to feel spiritually superior to others. But do you see? I mean, what is that? What, see, it's just another form of, of works righteousness. It's not moral superiority, but intellectual or experiential superiority. You know, a person might say, well, you know, I go to church three times a week. You go to church one time a week, most of the time. That makes me a better Christian than you. Right? And we all look at that and we say, no, wrong! That's legalism. You, know, you can't do that. 
That person's using their moral record exclusively to jump to the head of the line. They're looking, they're looking to it for a righteousness, right? For a sense of being right, being on the inside. So another person might say, well, I've had a religious experience that you've not had, and that makes me a better Christian than you. Again, that person is using their spiritual experience, whatever it might be, exclusively. They're looking to it for a righteousness. But then a person might say, well, I know something that you don't know. Right? I've got a revelation that you don't have, and that makes me a better Christian than you. I'm in the know. I'm an insider. And that feels good, but do you see, it's just another way of finding a righteousness apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I mean, do you see how all over the place our hearts are constantly doing this? And Jesus says, no, nobody knows. Nobody knows. And because nobody knows, then the second point as we kind of make our way, slog our way through this then, is, is if nobody knows, then in reality, the only thing that stands is the call to them be ready. So what are we to do? Because we can't know, we've got to be on call all the time, ready to go, dressed for action. The Westminster Confession of Faith teaches that it is spiritually dangerous to try to assign dates and series of events, of events to Jesus' second coming because... The whole exercise misses the intent of the Bible's teaching on the subject, that when the Bible talks about the second coming, it is not trying to give us details about the event itself. It is trying to help us prepare for it so we can be ready when it happens. So the confession says that God would have the day unknown so that we might shake off, this is the language, shake off carnal security and always be watchful. In other words, Jesus may come back next Saturday. Can I say amen Come, Lord Jesus. He may not. But whether he does or doesn't come on Saturday should not make our Friday any different. We should live each and every day ready, watchful, awake, not asleep, prepared, so that if he comes, we're ready to meet him. And that's the point of Jesus' instruction. So let me, let me show you how this passage really helps us to get ready. There are a couple of words here that get repeated over and over again. There's one word. In verse 42, then again verse 43, and then again in 23, 13, which is translated watch or be watchful. It's a Greek word that means literally to be awake, to be alert and ready for action. In Luke 6, Jesus and his disciples go out onto the sea in a boat, and John says that a strong wind began to blow, and the sea grew rough. Literally, the sea woke up. It got stirred up. It got churned up. It was quiet and still, and then it woke up and came to life and was active and moving around. Jesus uses the same word John uses there to describe the sea, to describe our posture for him as we wait for his return. We are to be awake, not asleep, stirred up and active, not quiet and still, alert, ready for action. Uh, If you've seen the movie Pearl Harbor, you know that the soldiers stationed at Pearl Harbor on the eve or even on the morning of the Japanese attack, they were not ready, they were not alert By the time they got to their stations and started to fight back, it was too late. They'd fallen asleep. Now contrast that with a story from the book of Nehemiah in our Old Testament scriptures. Nehemiah had come back to Jerusalem from captivity in the Persian Empire. And the first project that he undertook was to rebuild the city walls so that the city itself could be protected from the enemies that literally surrounded the people as they were there trying to do this project. And what we're told in Nehemiah, it's great is that as they hurried to rebuild the wall, they worked with one hand 
and with the other hand they held their swords in order that in a moment's notice they could be ready to slice the enemy. They literally work. Now, can you imagine? Moms could do this, but dad, dads, changing a diaper with one hand, holding the sword in the other. Right? I mean, and yet that's, the, that's what, what, how Nehemiah, he says that the leaders of the people didn't even take their clothes off for the, for the few weeks it took to get this done. They slept with their shoes on and, the, and their swords at their sides. They were alert and ready for danger, ready to spring to action at any moment. That's what, when he says be watchful, that's what it means. Be ready. Be alert. Be prepared. The other word is a Greek word in Matthew 24 uh, that really means, it's toismazo, which means to be, to be prepared. Uh, it's, it kind of plays on the other word. It, it basically, it refers to what you do in the spare bedroom before your mom comes to visit. Right? Get it ready. You change the sheets on the bed. You fluff the pillows. You clean things up around the house. You get everything just the way she would like for it to be so that when she comes, you can minimize the amount of mothering you have to endure. Right? You get prepared. Jesus says, I'm coming. Have the beds made and the pillows fluffed. Be ready. Don't wait until you hear the knock on the door and then rush around and try to cram things into the closet. You'll find yourself on the outside looking in. That's what he says. Be ready. And then what he does, and this is just, again, as we continue to walk, there are three parables that Jesus uses as illustrations of this. And so I just want to walk through these three parables. And then we're done. Parable number one. If you want to know what it looks like to to be stirred up and ready, to, to live ready and prepared for his return. These three parables kind of give us some insight into that. The first is of the householder and the thief, verses 43 through 44, chapter 24. And I think the teaching there just means this, be proactive. The call really is to be proactive, not reactive. I mean, be proactive. I mean, if you overheard some plans, you know, you were down at the coffee shop and then two thieves were there and they were planning to rob your house, you wouldn't go home Put your kids to bed and lay down and go to sleep. You'd get the shotgun out and you'd sit in the dark and you'd wait for the lock to start to jiggle. Rick's nodding his head. I'd hate to be the poor sap that broke into your house, Rick. Right? You have an enemy. I mean, you have an enemy, they're coming. You wait, prepared for the, you know. And what the scripture says is we have an enemy. John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So don't forget about him. Pay attention. Peter says it this way, be sober-minded and watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour men. There is a thief coming to steal. There is a lion on the prowl, and he's after your wife, and he's after your kids. You better take that seriously. You better not fall asleep. You better pay attention. You're on watch. They get to rest. They get to go to bed and put their head on the pillow because you're on watch and you are not going to let any harm come to them while you're on watch. That's be proactive. To all of us, I think this says, don't neglect spiritual things. Be diligent in the means of grace. Be active and energetic towards the mission of Jesus. Go to war for the souls of those under your care. Take the warnings of Scripture seriously and stir yourself up like the waves of the sea to good works. That's what it means to live ready. And prepared. But the second parable is the parable of the faithful servant. Verses 24, I mean, excuse me, 24, 45 through 51. And I think the teaching there in that parable is just not only to be proactive, but be a faithful steward. This servant there in those verses would have been a slave who would have been given authority over the other slaves while the master was gone away. 
And in Jesus' parable are, are two different servants. The one who is ready for his master's return, the other one who is not. The one who's ready is the one who has faithfully stewarded his responsibilities. Uh, Luke 12, there's a similar passage. We read it in our call to worship. It says, he's been do- busy doing his master's will. But there's a temptation, and, and the temptation is just this, that the master might be so long in coming, that the servant might begin to think, you know, maybe he won't come back. He'll begin to forget he's a servant and begin to live as if the master won't return to make account of things. He begins to live as if there's no sense of accounting. He takes advantage of his position, we're told, and becomes self-indulgent. And the application for us is just this. Wherever you've been given authority or influence or resources or whatever the case may be, you are to steward those for the good of the people you're called to care for. Don't exalt yourself and indulge yourself and harm others. Remember, you're a steward. And the promise of the Scriptures is you're going to have to give an account of how you use the position and the gifts Jesus has given you. And so to live ready and prepared for his return is to faithfully carry out the assignment he's given you. To live for him and for others and not for yourself. To live as if the things you have don't belong to you, but belong to somebody else. Be a faithful steward, he says. And then the third parable, the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And I think the application of this parable. So be proactive, be a steward. And then the third, I think, application for us or helpful way of what it looks like for us to live ready and prepared is be wise. Now, the parable just kind of shows a typical Jewish wedding uh, celebration where the bridegroom would go away once he had proposed marriage to his bride. He would go away to his father's house, prepare a room uh, for he and his bride to live in there. Once he was done with the construction and all the preparations had been made, typically in the middle of the night he would come parading back through the city with all of his friends and his attendants and would call the city to come back to his father's house to celebrate uh, the wedding together. And and Jesus is is picturing this, and he's saying uh, that sometimes, and if you've been a bride before, and I'm not a fan of long engagements, but sometimes even a three-month engagement can feel like an eternity. Can it? Because you just can't wait to get to that day. And, and Jesus is trying to say, it might take a long time before I come back. Be wise. We're told five of these bridesmaids were wise and five were foolish, Matthew 25, two, They were heedless. They were careless. They were blockheaded. Literally. It's the same word Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. So I want to say it this way. What I mean by being wise I think what the Bible teaches at this point about this being wise means to live the short term in light of the long term and to live the small moments and subplots of life in light of the bigger story that's unfolding. Okay? That's what I mean by wisdom. To live the short term in light of the long term, to live the small moments and subplots of life in light of the bigger story that's unfolding. Because these foolish bride, bridesmaids, you see, they took their lamps, but they didn't bring any oil with them in case the bridegroom was long in coming. The wise bridesmaids took lamps and oil. They were ready. They were prepared. They thought about the long term. And really, I think what comes out of is this idea of investment here, right? We know what that is, don't we? We know what it means to invest. And for a lot of us, the day, of prep, the, the day we're preparing for in our culture, most of us in this room, where we understand this idea of preparedness and readiness and planning is not the day where we will stand in front of God to give an account for our life. Most of us, very practically, the day of preparation that we're aiming at is the day we decide we no longer are going to work anymore and we get to go and live on the golf course for the next 25 years of our life. That's the day. I mean, that's the day where everything's kind of 
that day, right? It's the little green line on the little commercial, right, where you just kind of follow it along and it's going to take you to where you need to go. Uh, and so I think it's an applicable, applicable you know, illustration. I mean, that, that we know this idea of investment, that any long-range investment strategy means you make a series of small deposits over time, you delay gratification, you make sacrifices in the short term for the sake of your long-term financial well-being. A wise person, then, is a person who will make decisions, whether they're financial or otherwise, based upon the long-term impact they might have. Because if you don't prepare, if you don't delay gratification for the sake of your, your future well-being, right, then when the future becomes the present, then there won't be anything to carry you through your retirement years. And that's the analogy, not the application, okay? The application is just this, that a wise person is the one who is willing to delay gratification and invest in eternity. It's the person who lives in such a way as to maximize their enjoyment of Jesus forever and ever, rather than only living for the moment. So be wise. Don't live for things that will only last a few years or a few decades. That's not wise. John Piper, who's a pastor in Minneapolis, I I listened to a podcast, and he prayed a prayer before he preached, and sometimes his prayers are better than his sermons. Uh, and in this prayer, he, 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 he made this statement in this prayer that so many, he was just confessing his sin and saying, so many of our desires are just stupid. They're just foolish. And here's the way he put it. Just listen to this. He said, it is utterly insane for us to pitch ourselves out of a window of sin on the top of a skyscraper to enjoy a vapor's exhilaration of the free fall of greed or of the free fall of power or of the free fall of sex, or the free fall of job success, and then death. He's saying it's foolish, and what the Bible's saying here, I think, is it's foolish to live for material possessions or job success or financial security, because if you actually gain those things, all they do is provide but a vapor's exhilaration as you rocket towards the cement below. But to live ready and prepared for Jesus' return means... You really live as if he's coming again, and you really live as if the life you will live is more real than the present life you experience, and you consciously invest in the life to come. All throughout your life, you make little deposits that will become an inheritance for you that you can enjoy forever and ever and ever. C.S. Lewis is credited with saying, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in, but aim at earth and you get neither. Aim at heaven. That's wisdom. Don't get to the day you stand before him and be unprepared. That's foolish. So be proactive. Be wise. I mean, excuse me, be proactive. Be a steward. Be wise. Now let me conclude. And as you consider these things, as you think about what it means to aim at heaven and not earth, don't forget who it is who's coming and what, he is, what, he, what it is he's bringing, because that'll help you. Okay? Who it is who's coming and what it is he's bringing. So first, who it is who's coming. I want you to think about that little phrase at the beginning of the passage in verse 36 where Jesus says, concerning that day, no one knows, not even the Son. I mean, does that cause you any pause? It presents a whole host of problems, doesn't it? I mean, don't we believe Jesus is God, omnipotent, omniscient, etc.? I mean, what does this mean? And the way that most scholars wrestle through it is something like this, that in his incarnation, Jesus, who was fully God, made himself nothing. Jonathan alluded to this in his prayer. He emptied himself, Ephesians 2, That doesn't mean that when he was born, he ceased to be God in some way. It means that all throughout his life, though he still possessed the qualities and attributes of God, he refused to draw upon them. He refused to kick back into them for the sake of the obedience that he came to win for us as a 
person born under the law, born under sin the way we are. He gave them up. That's what it means. He gave up everything. He gave up his power. He gave up his authority. He gave up his knowledge. He gave up his riches. And Why would he do that? Because it was the only way he could gain what he wanted even more than those things, and that's you and me. That's who's coming. He gave up everything to be able to share eternity with you. And when you see that, then it will make you willing to give up everything to be able to share eternity with him. But also, don't forget, when he comes, it will be as a bridegroom coming for his bride, right? Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. And when the Bible talks about what Jesus is bringing, one of the images it uses is a wedding. If you've been to a wedding recently, you know no matter how hard you might try, you can't be in a bad mood at a wedding. Even I can't be in a bad mood at a wedding. Because there's music and dancing and champagne and good food. And everybody is dressed nice and looks beautiful. Jesus chose to start his public ministry at a wedding. That's not coincidence. It's a statement about what it was he was accomplishing. Heaven, we're told, will be like a great wedding feast. That will be joy that we can't possibly imagine. That will far outweigh and surpass the tiny little joys that are but an echo of the joy we'll experience there that we experience in this, in this life. It will be the place where all of our deepest desires are met and satisfied. Where all of our fears and doubts will be laid to rest. And there will only be the joy of knowing the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. See, that's who's coming. And that's what he's bringing. Do you see how it's foolish to live to maximize my enjoyment of this and to minimize my enjoyment of him and of that. But true wisdom is to do the opposite, to live in such a way that I maximize my enjoyment of him and of the wedding feast that he's bringing. That's what it means to be ready and prepared for his coming. And so as we look to him to come, let's pray that he would make us faithful uh, just in that. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess to you that like so many before us, we... Uh, we live uh, in our sins so insecure and, and um, confused and not with the love that you have for us exploding in our hearts. And so we're always on the look for something that will make us uh, feel right, some spiritual experience, some theological truth that we can hang over other people, some uh, hidden wisdom or secret knowledge that we might possess that would make us feel like an insider and and make sure to point out all the others who are outsiders. We confess that to you, and we pray that you would grant to us this morning a vision of what it will be like when you, who gave up everything that you might have us, comes to take us to your Father's home and to wed us to yourself, that there will be joy and celebration like we've never experienced, that all the deepest desires of our hearts will be fully met. Would you give us a vision of that? And as we wait, would you help us to live ready and prepared? That on the day we stand before you, we might hear you say and proclaim, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Thank you for being here and wrestling through these things with us. We realize... Uh, this subject matter creates a lot of um, questions and, uh, uh, you know, confusion. And so one, one of the things we've said is during this series, beginning this morning, uh, right down here, uh, after the service is over, about 10 minutes after the service lets out, I'm going to stay 
and uh, be willing to just engage in dialogue and question and answer for a while. So if you've just got burning questions that you need to ask, uh, you stick around and meet me down here. I've got to go pray uh, for a few minutes with a family back here, but then I'll be done with that and be back out and we can do a Q&A, okay? Uh, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, uh, then remember, as you wait for him to come, we're not working for the day that he comes so that on that day he will look at the record of our work and he will pronounce a verdict of, of you know, blessing over our life. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then because of the work of Christ on your behalf, the verdict is in. Uh, and that's the promise of this benediction, that as I raise my hands, this is the Father's disposition towards all those who have their faith in, in Christ Jesus and who are trusting in him and following him, uh, then you can be confident even now of the Father's love and his affection and his delight in you and then live toward the day that you will get to lit, stand face to face with him. So receive the benediction then as we consider these things. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen.